miss, I'll miss the young, the young people when we come to this space. But uh, the younger people, but we're all still young at heart, aren't we? Um, I'm Sharon. For those of you who might not know me, and uh, I have the privilege of pastoring this church community. And our family have been away for five weeks. We were back last week, um, but we were away for five Saturdays, so we've missed you guys. It's interesting how, um, for me anyway, when uh, it's not very often that uh, I'm not at my home church for five weeks in a row. We did um, try to attend a church one Saturday. It lined up nicely and we turned up at Cooper Pedy Church. Anyone here been to a church in Cooper Pedy? There's a, there's a wave up the back. Um, Cooper Pedy is a fascinating place in Australia. But unfortunately, the day we turned up, there was no one at church. So we had a look around what we could. Um, and we, uh, we didn't get to worship with, with them that particular week. Maybe there was something on we didn't know about. But it is really nice to be back home. And I always feel like I miss my home community when we've been away. So, um, yeah, so it's really nice to be here, really nice to be back. Of course, when you're, uh, when you're away, for us, we did a trip uh, up through the centre of Australia and you learn a lot along the way when you're away and we experienced lots of different things and I want to share a little bit about uh, something that we learnt while we were away. So I don't know if, you've, if these faces are familiar to you, but I'm guessing not. So Paul McGuinness and Hudson Fish. These two guys uh, met in World War I. They uh, were pilots and so Paul McGuinness is on your left. And um, yeah, which way is facing? Uh, and Hudson Fish was a gunner. And these guys um, met each other there. But some years later, the Prime Minister of Australia at one time, at the time, he put up a competition called the Great Air Race. And there was going to be a prize of 10,000 Australian pounds for the person, people who could fly from Britain to Australia. And these guys reconnected at that time because they had both experienced um, being pilots and being in planes and they thought, hey, let's see if we can win this. And they sought out some funding and they were on their way to, to the Great Air Race. However, the gentleman that was going to fund them and had bought them a plane that helped to fund the, uh, their travel and, and all that they needed for the race unfortunately passed away and their estate would not give over the money. So Hudson Fish and Paul McGuinness were actually appointed then to be surveyors, to actually survey out northern Australia to make sure that... Uh, there was adequate places for planes to land between Longreach and Darwin. Now, this is back in the day before there was the roads that we got to travel on. And these guys um, took this vehicle um, from Longreach on uncharted road through the bush. Uh, they got through to Catherine. Now, Catherine's sort of south of Darwin where they did get to meet some kind of road. It took them 51 days to navigate that path and they were looking for good places for airstrips and landing spots. Well, the race came and the race went and as they were heading back 
to uh, Longreach where, um, where they had first started this epic journey of surveying, McGuinness had an idea that got passed on to Fish and they met again and that idea was to start an airline service because they felt, look, this road that we had gone on or this journey we had taken in northern Australia was pretty epic. It would be much easier to fly. And so they had this idea, we can connect people up in this very remote region if we could start an airline service. And you know what that one is, don't you? Qantas. So Qantas was started, Queensland and Northern Territory Airline Service by Hudson Fish and Paul McGuinness. And I think about it, it wasn't long after these guys met um, and they had this conversation that a few more people were brought on the scene. There was, um, oh, just had a moment, Fergus McMaster. He ended up becoming the chairman. And Ainsley Templeton, he was a wealthy wool farmer up in Longreach. And he funded, put in the major amount of funding. And also there was a gentleman that Arthur Baird, he joined the team as the main engineer. And this crew, this team, took that one little idea and it became what we know today as Qantas. Paul McGuinness, just a couple of years after, this is 1920, he actually um, left. He left Qantas. But Hudson Fish, he stayed on through his entire life in some way, shape or form, uh, a leader in Qantas, and he passed away in the late 1970s. You know, I look at McGuinness, and you read about him, and, and even in the Qantas Museum up in Longreach, it says these words, and I was re, uh, researching it through this week, and it says he was a very shy, quiet man. In fact, he re reminisces that when he was a boy, he actually felt that he was looked down on doesn't explain why, maybe because of his shyness, maybe there was more to it. Um, but it does say that he had a very sharp acumen for business. And so here's a young person who's very shy and he actually didn't like the public face that much. But with his mate Paul, they took a little idea, they gathered a team and they established an airline service connecting people all around the world today. Over the last few weeks, we've been sharing the theme of love as a church community to challenge us that this is something God wants us to do, to love on others. And I wasn't here, but we've traveled a journey with um, Damo, who shared with us, and he talked about, too, that Jesus lived the life of serving others. And he talked about a story and a miracle in the Bible where water is turned to wine and he left with that message that the real miracle happened when it was tipped out of the jug the water was seen to turn into wine and he challenged those of you or those of us that were here that when we actually give of ourselves we will see a miracle we had Michael, he shared about how each one of us has time and uh, talents and our time and giving of our time and that we are 
to see ourselves heading to the table, not as somebody is heading just for a feast, but as a family where we all contribute and we all gather together. And last week we had the privilege of having Andy Gourlay here. He um, was just a young uni student who uh, ended up in a, in a way he would never have expected, but serving young people, and that's turned into an organisation today we know as Red Frogs. Today, we're just going to travel a journey and look at a scripture that looks at a we, a we meaning the power of serving together, the strength of unity. Hudson Fish and Paul McGuinness, they had that dream, but had they kept it to themselves, I can't imagine it would have realised into what it is today. There's definitely power in one. There's so much power in one. If you think about it, there's heaps of power in one, but there's loads of strength in many. When you think of the ocean, you think of water. I often think of water, and that's that one drop doesn't seem like much so we may feel like that but when we work together those many drops they make the ocean each one is important and as many is strength so we want to look at a story I felt really impressed to share this story today and there's so many avenues of of looking at this particular story it's a very simple story and for some who may be very familiar with the Bible, it's a story you all have well known. But I just really ask that, um, yeah, you, you see into it what God wants for you to see into it today. This story is found in, in Mark, which is one of four uh, accounts of Jesus' life. And this story here is actually found in three accounts of Jesus' life. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are four accounts of Jesus' life that we find in the Bible directly of his time when he was here on earth. But you'll find this story in Matthew, Mark and Luke. It's recounted three times, very similarly, a little bit of extra detail here and there. Um, but we're going to take it from Mark's account. Mark actually, he, uh, he possibly was a really good friend of Peter and possibly recorded Peter's experiences with Jesus. He was quite young at the time when Jesus was around Mark, most likely. But Peter was one of Jesus' 12. He had 12 special followers, and Peter was one of those. And it's possible that a lot of Mark's stories either were his experience or recounted stories of Peter from his experiences with Jesus. So this story we find in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to just follow it along a little bit and draw out some things from it. So Jesus has spent some time. He's actually just healed a leper. In, in biblical times, a leper uh, was an isolated person. We still have lepers today, as we all know, uh, and still in some parts of the world they are treated um, quite differently. But that is uh, that discrimination is not as bad, perhaps, as it was back in the time of, of the Bible, back in biblical times. And Jesus had just healed a leper, and he uh, had spent some time away and he's returned to a place called Capernaum and Capernaum is a town where not where Jesus grew up but it came to kind of like a bit of a hub for his ministry where he would come backwards and forwards to and there's quite a lot of stories based in this part of um, of the Middle East in the town called Capernaum and it did interestingly say that it doesn't exist anymore today Capernaum and it was scripturally predicted that it wouldn't so that's a little interesting side note 
So Jesus' return is where we just take up this story. A few days later, when Jesus entered again, again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. I, I always find it fascinating, and I just wish I could have been around at that time, that where Jesus was, there was often a large crowd. Where Jesus was, people gathered. Where Jesus was, people seemed to draw in. For various reasons, of course, but there seemed to be a crowd, and this was no exception. Here we have a, a house that is crowded so full that there's no room, not even outside the door. Now, I'm not sure the last time you had a meeting or a gathering where it was so crowded there was no room at the door. Probably um, maybe the AFL Grand Final or um, some major concert. Uh, it's not often these days that you go to a space where it's so full there's not even room at the door. So picture it slightly minor scale than the MCG perhaps or the Brisbane Entertainment Centre whatever. But there is no room. It is full and overflowing out the door. And here we have a scenario that we're going to just hone in on for a little bit. These men, four of them, are bringing a man to Jesus who is paralysed. Now, back in um, this time, again, often people's ailments were described by their symptoms. They didn't have pathology reports and x-rays. So we're not quite sure exactly what this man had. Maybe some kind of um, cerebral palsy. Who knows? But what they do know and how they do describe it is that he could not walk. And, of course, for him, that um, was very unfortunate. As we said before, lepers, lepers were seen as very much isolated. Um, it was, they were contagious. So they were pushed outside of families, outside of cities. They weren't allowed to interact with people um, because of that ailment. But people who had a disability, they weren't isolated as much, but they sure were stigmatised. They were sure labelled. They had a big brand on them. And in Jewish time, that brand wasn't so nice because that brand was you've done something really bad. You've done some bad sin, is the term they would call it. And they would label that person a very bad sinner for something personal that they must have done, which is why they've ended up with their ailment. And so those people, this leper, he would have felt that stigmatism. He would have felt that label that he was not good. Whether he... Um, believed that, that, that he had done something wrong and known he had or not, he felt worthless because of this label and this stigmatism. And I suppose in that there, there's a sense of um, two ways could feel hopeless or hopeful. And uh, I love that here there's a sense of hopefulness in this story. So here we have this, um, this young man, man, who's being carried likely on a, some kind of stretcher-like bed by four of his mates. 
So I think about this little story here, and we just hone in. It's all a presumption to some degree because we don't know exactly. But if we dig out behind it, I'm wondering if one of the mates said to the other mates, hey, why don't we take him to Jesus? They might have been sitting around the dinner table. They might have been outside fishing. I don't know. But the chances are the idea came from one and shared it amongst them as a group and decided, hey, yeah, why don't we do this? It also shows that it's likely that they had a belief that something was going to change by doing it. But they cared enough, they loved enough, this mate, to go, yes, let's do it. Andy said something last week. He said, whenever you give, it, it costs. It costs something. It costs maybe financially. It costs maybe from our time. But by giving, it costs us something. And for these guys, it's the same. It obviously would have cost them something. We don't know how far they came from. We don't know what things they had to give, a, give up, put aside, while they were going to do this. Maybe even some of their other friends might have even been mocking them, going, what's the bother of doing that? Nothing's going to happen. And um, mocked them. Who knows? But they had to sacrifice something to follow through with the idea. So in essence, really, it took effort, maybe great effort. We can't be sure. But they, they made that effort to, to take his friend. It was his friend, and it wasn't just the one, it was four. It was a team effort. And um, I don't know, mattresses these days, like um, they're heavy, some are light, but I tell you what, um, there's no way that I could easily carry one mattress with one man on it myself. And I'm sure even the strongest of males probably couldn't do that for a long period of time. It definitely needed a team. So they find themselves headed over to where Jesus is at Capernaum, wherever they have come from, and they find the scenario that we just read about. There is absolutely no way through. And if you can just picture it, here's a guy on a stretcher who can't walk and all these crowd around who label this guy. There's no way they're going to part the waters for him to go, sure, come through, have a path, make a way. It was kind of like, excuse me, step back, out of the way. You shouldn't be here. What are you doing here? You've done something really wrong. So um, there was no sort of part the Red Sea, no lay out the red carpet for this guy. Once these four saw that there was no way to get in, they obviously had to come up with a second, second plan, plan B. And it says here... Um, that they carried him to Jesus, and we'll just carry on from there. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, digging through it, and lowered the mat, and the man was lying on it. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. So they came up with plan B, and the houses in, these, in this day and age, a clay-type brick structure, the roof was usually some kind of planks, maybe some branches, and then some clay-type tiles, and then some hard mud. Usually the roof was a flat roof, and often actually doubled, doubled as some kind of porch or patio or 
uh, upstairs dwelling that you could be outside on. Some say that there was could have been steps up the side, others aren't sure, depending on um, the particular location in um, Capernaum. But this is the kind of structure, and they obviously decided, well, we can, we can come up with plan B. Not only that, they had to do a little bit of sort of um, planning to go, well, we're going to put a hole in this roof, but we want it to be right where Jesus is. And some say that perhaps the house was a large house because of the clay tiles, suggesting that that possibly might have been a more wealthy owner that could afford the clay tiles and a larger house that needed clay tiles. Unsure, but nonetheless, wherever they had to dig to make sure that they were, their whole aim was to get this man to Jesus. So I can imagine, I don't know how you, if you placed yourself in three different people's position, one, the people sitting in the room there, two, the owner of the house, and three, Jesus, as dirt starts to sprinkle onto their heads, maybe a few twigs, maybe um, a, a piece of clay tile, who knows? What would you be thinking as this event is unfolding? It's really interesting, I find, as you read a story, and if you're semi-familiar or very familiar, um, sometimes we skip over the detail and we don't pause to actually really contemplate the big picture of what's going on. You try and picture us standing in here, this room fully crowded, and the roof starting to be pulled apart and bits of maybe gyp rock or roof coming down on us. What will we start to think? What will we start to be feeling? And especially uh, Mr. Baird, if he was here, he wouldn't like the idea of this roof starting to come apart. I love the fact that Jesus obviously is not bothered by this. It's not a huge deal to him, certainly not a negative deal. And he says words that were unexpected. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the story goes on. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So the man encounters Jesus at this point because of his friend's love, because of his, uh, their willingness to serve. There's an encounter with Jesus that takes place. Now the encounter is maybe not what they anticipate. I'm sure these guys had heard about Jesus' healing. That's why they brought him here. They, they believe, they have a faith that Jesus is going to heal this guy. There's no, there, there's no doubt that they have a faith, otherwise they wouldn't have done it in the first place. And there's no doubt even the paralyzed man had a little bit of faith, if not a lot, a little bit, to let them and allow them to take him to Jesus. But I'm fairly certain that mostly he was looking for a physical healing, even though underneath... He really did need an emotional and a spiritual healing. 
And along with that, socially, from his uh, stigmatism, he wanted to feel accepted and belong. And I love it that Jesus sees right to his heart straight away and he offers him something that maybe he wasn't really acknowledging that he wanted or needed at the time, but deep down he did need. And that was a sense of forgiveness. And the words that Jesus uses and he speaks to them, he's, um, he says this, your sins are forgiven. In um, another translation of the Bible, it uses the word son, your sins are forgiven. Or another um, Luke uses friend, your sins are forgiven. He wants him to know that you are accepted, that you are worthy, that you belong and that you are valuable to me. He goes deeper than just the physical healing and wants to cut right through to the deep, deeper stuff that sits right inside. So we find here an acceptance and that's the type of Jesus that I love. That's the God that I serve. That's a God who accepts, a God who accepts all of us, no matter what stigmatisms we sit on our foreheads, not because of maybe a disability that anybody can see, but because of stuff that goes on in our own minds and in our own lives. And so we label ourselves. But Jesus looks right through and he can see right into that. And he says, son, daughter, I love you as you are. Your sins are forgiven, says that you are family and you are accepted and you belong. And he says that to every single one of us. And lastly, as the story plays out, we have these um, scribes and Pharisees. In this translation, it says the teachers of the law. And in um, one of the other, it uses the term Pharisee and in another, scribes. So these three groups of people, Pharisees, teachers of the law and scribes, the Pharisees, um, in, a, in a Hebrew sense, comes from a word called pharas, which means um, separate. These guys saw themselves as Jews, but separate to the Jews, better than the Jews. They actually felt very, they were more righteous, more right. And they had a load of laws that they would um, arduously try and follow to be right and to be better. And then the scribes, these guys were the ones who wrote and they actually were the ones who who could write law and, and, and they wrote policy and that kind of thing of their day, you could put it like that. And then there were the teachers of the law, which also had a term called rabbi, who obviously knew the scriptures very well. So these guys were, um, and then in the crowd, there was a gathering, a lot like us. Um, but these guys were questioning, not out loud, but in their hearts. And Jesus acted upon that. He knew, he was insightful and could, knew, could know and so he spoke into them and, and challenged them. Sometimes there is opposition, even when you have something good that you want to do, you find opposition. I'll talk to that in a minute. But the story plays out at the end. So Jesus said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. 
So here we have um, Jesus giving an instruction to the paralyzed man who could choose to obey or not to obey, who could choose to believe or not to believe. And it seems like at that point he got up, which meant he believed something had changed in his body. And it's interesting that um, when the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of law challenged Jesus, they were challenging Jesus by saying, you say you can forgive, but only God in heaven can do that and you're not God, which is why they, they, they called him out and said he was blaspheming, which is a, a term used to say you're saying you're God and you're not. You're talking against the God of heaven. But Jesus says, you know, if, if I say your sins are forgiven um, and then you get up and walk, this um, affirms or supports my divinity. And so by this man getting up and walking, it affirmed what he had just said before, that he had the authority to be able to say your sins are forgiven. This man gets up. He stands up and he walks out and everyone is amazed. And I love the words there at the end. In this, in Luke's account, he says, we have never seen anything like this. And I think about Hudson Fish and Paul McGuinness, if they could be alive today and they could see those 8380s, they would think the same. We have never seen anything like this. They could have never have imagined where their idea in the back streets of Winton it actually was, where that would have taken them. As so many things around the world, for Andy, who was here last week, and his mate said, uh, the young kids that he was looking after said, come down here to schoolies, Andy. He would never have imagined where that could have led. And for those four friends who brought um, that man to Jesus that day, they definitely hoped in their heart that Jesus would heal. I wonder if they fully, fully believed it. I wonder if they too were saying, I could never have imagined this was going to happen today. And for the people that were around watching and looking on, the same. So we find here a story and I... I I draw out of it this when it comes to our um, theme that we've been trying to share and, and bring to, to you in different ways that as we work as a team, there are a number of things that I think come into play. First of all is that the four men, they had... They had a willingness that they actually wanted to do something. They had a willingness that they uh, wanted to love. And I believe every one of us have that willingness. We want to do something. We want to, to love. We want to serve another person. And I believe that so many times in um, our seasons of life, God does plant ideas into our minds. Or uh, maybe we get an idea and we don't recognize it's from God. That's cool too. But God does put something into our mind. And these guys were willing to entertain that idea. Well, at least the one that it came to, maybe it came to all of them, but I'm guessing it came to one. And they were very much willing to actually 
entertain the idea. They could see the opportunity that lay there. The second is, is as we've been talking about, is that from that one idea that you might have, they gathered the team and how important it was that they needed that team. And we too need others. I don't know about you. I, I see myself in this story a lot. I get lots of ideas. I'm a bit of an ideas person. Maybe some are just random ideas. Others I believe God does place on my heart. And many of them I actually just sort of push aside and go that, and I give many an excuse like time or too hard or what if nobody or all of those kinds of things. And the odd occasion that something has got off the ground, I remember when I was um, in Sydney and uh, I really felt God wanted me to start a small group with some ladies. And I was like, well, what if God, no one, what if no one will come and um, when will I have it and who will I ask and, and all of these kind of questions that we have when we have an idea but we feel a little bit overwhelmed by it and a bit um, like we don't have what it takes to do it. And I was meeting up with a lady who was going through a tough time and um, she has an ongoing illness and I was in her house having a visit one day and we were just chatting over her amazing cooking <laughs> And I was just, for whatever reason, it tumbled out of my mouth saying, oh, you know, I've been thinking of this idea and just and it just came out. And she was so encouraging and so affirming and she was like, you should do that, Sharon, let's do that. And because of that um, conversation with her, I seemed to, to with her, I, I got the sort of what it needed to actually take the next step. And um, we did. We got the women's group going and... Um, my third year I've been away from Sydney and the group is still going and I feel so blessed that I had that conversation with her because without that I probably would have just stayed back by myself and without sharing that idea and gathering the team it wouldn't have gone anywhere so there's so much power in having a support person you know Proverbs says that you know when one fall there's power in two because when one falls down the other is there to help them up and that's so true. God wants us to work together and where we do, there is so much strength. The other is initiative. Great ideas come when you get a team together. I don't know about you, but sometimes you sit around a table trying to bleed out an idea and nothing comes. Or there's a few ideas and then you go, gather five or four or three friends and you sit around and you have a yarn and before you know it you're like wow that's a great idea I've never thought of that yeah we should do that that's what happens in business they're all around isn't it and that's what can happen in this space too is if you sit around and bounce around ideas what was once that little idea can blossom into something so much more than you could have thought of just by yourself simply because you have come together and shared that idea you take initiative, you bounce ideas around, and for these guys, their initiative um, brought them up through the roof, or down through the roof, I suppose. The other is persistence, and um, this one's a tricky one. When we come up with an idea and we even gather some people around, it is easy to, to give up too soon. Sometimes plan A just does not work out. It doesn't turn out the way that we expect. We may go out to help somebody and it doesn't work out. But that doesn't mean that we should give up. 
I remember a time when I was in um, New York and I was young and we were traveling. There was a whole group of us and there's a lot of homeless people in, in New York as there are in many places. And one of our friends, we were just wanted walking along the street and then um, we sort of looked around. She disappeared. Next minute she popped out of like a 7-Eleven or that kind of thing and she had a little bag of, um, of, of food and, and um, <laughs> she ran back um, behind us and there was an, a, a man, uh, I'm not quite sure how old he was, but a homeless gentleman sitting there and um, she pulled out of her bag some food, uh, of including a muffin, and um, to give to him. And, and the, the uh, homeless man said to her, I don't eat muffins. <laughs> and she was <laughs> quite a taken back. So when she caught up with us and she told us she was a bit like sort of a taken back. Um, but there's no reason. There's no reason. There's not a reason to stop wanting to help other people because Plan A didn't work, because uh, you faced some kind of um, objection the first time. I suppose sometimes need Plan B or Plan C or even Plan D might be the better plan, but uh, you have to regather. And obviously these guys did that too. They regathered. Can't get through the door. We're going to go as we've said before through the roof. I also like the fact that in this scenario, they could have turned away. They could have gone home, but there must have been some kind of urgency. It's like it's now or never. We've put in this effort, so um, we, wanna, we, we want to go with this right now. And I do think sometimes that's even in our scenario, I definitely can testify in my own, that sometimes we let go of an opportunity. And we can't harbour on that or regret. We can regret it, I suppose, in a sense, to help us the next time. But sometimes our opportunity goes where we could have loved on somebody else and that has passed because we didn't do the now. Sometimes someone else then has that privilege of being able to be a part of that journey and we get to unfortunately miss out. And as we said before, and as we can see, these guys faced some opposition. Well, certainly Jesus did in this scenario. The opposition coming from the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It could have changed the situation. But it's true for us, as, we, as I did slightly mention before, you may come up with a good idea or you may feel God is leading you a certain path and you may find that you get some kind of criticism or some kind of opposition in some way. Someone puts you down. Somebody says a nasty comment. Somebody doesn't give their support like you thought they would. But that doesn't mean to say that you, we stop or we give up. If God is behind it, it will go ahead. And we do need the courage and we do need um, the, the strength sometimes to just keep going. There's a little um, acronym. You will have heard it. Some of you will have heard it before. It's an oldie called PUSH. Pray until something happens. P-U-S-H. And sometimes that's what we need to do. When it gets to that kind of situation, we need to just pray on through it and ask God if you're a praying person and, and say, God, please show us the way. How do I push through this so that, um, God, we can carry on what you want us to do? If God is behind any idea, then you can have faith that God will see it through. And in this scenario, as we mentioned, somewhere had faith somewhere. 
to bring that guy to Jesus. And if God is behind your idea, do know that God will see it through. We can trust God with what he places on our hearts. We know because he is God. The thing that I love about this story in the way that I look at it is the impact. And as I said, with Andy, with Hudson Fish, Paul McGuinness, and with us, you just don't know what impact your following through might have as we work together as a team to love on somebody else. We may never know the impact. I think more than often the impact can be unexpected. It's not what we expect or anticipate. I think many times the impact is more than, it's more than we expect or anticipate. And I think many times the impact is deeper. It's more significant than you and I could ever expect or anticipate. I have a look at different teams here that serve in our church, the breakfast team. They may think that they're just serving breakfast, but they don't realise how much more than and deeper to some people your service is. To the people who might stand in the door or at the car park holding up a sign, you might not feel that your service is much. But let me tell you, you don't know what day somebody comes in and your small smile and your welcoming sign and your hello has more than and deeper an impact than you will know. And that goes for your workplace, uni, school, wherever we are. We just don't know. And then as we multiply that in a team and in a team force, we don't know the impact that our love will have. Sometimes we go out to meet the physical need and that's, that's what really we've been talking about here. We've been talking about just showing an act of love for love's sake, just, um, just to love on somebody. But that love will well up a warm emotion and that warm emotion can change a person the way they feel about themselves, may change their social outlook and ultimately, who knows, but their spiritual journey as well. See, for this guy, his heart was healed and then his flesh followed, his flesh was healed. And that's the same when you reach out to somebody, you might do something that actually makes them feel more positive about themselves, which may, may change the way that they make decisions and do something else that may actually change their actual actions or their actual path in life. We don't know. But when we reach in and we just love for love's sake, we don't know what impact we will have. There was a quote I read, and I'm not sure of who said it. Um, it didn't say it clearly, but it said in this so story, the bed had borne the man, but now the man bore the bed. And that's the change. That bed bore him, but now he is free. You see, miracles happen as... We have talked about um, way back at the start when Damo spoke. Miracles happen when God and humans work together. And that's the thing. Isn't that crazy cool? Like when we have a little idea that may be planted by God, often planted by God, we take it to a mate and say, hey, I've got this idea. I feel, I feel we could do this. And they say, oh, let's get a few people around. Let's pray about it. And let's 
you don't know the miracle that's on the other side. And how cool, you're a part of it. Last of all is this, that our love that we share in unity to others is a revelation of God. And ultimately, we say um, that as a Christian, we want to live out a life that's loving without strings attached. There's nothing we expect back. Nothing. We want to love because Jesus loved. But there's one thing we do hope for, and that is that that person may find Jesus. Ultimately, we want that person to find a friendship and a relationship with Jesus. Because that's what Jesus is all about. That's what the Christian thing is all about. It is a friendship and a relationship and an identity and a future with Jesus. And so ultimately, as we reach out and love, we don't expect anything back. But we hope and pray that maybe one day that person will discover the love of God for them. You see, the healing of the paralytic man, it reveals that that man was a man in need, that that man, he was blessed by a group who showed an act of kindness, and that that man had a life that was changed because of that kindness. And in some ways, we can be like the paralyzed man. We need Jesus too. In fact, we have needs that only Jesus can fulfill. That man needed forgiveness too, and we need forgiveness too. We need to release that weight that sometimes we carry. We need to restore a feeling of belonging and family and of acceptance. And like the paralyzed man, we need friends, friends that will walk the journey with us and help us. When it comes to just summing up just our message today and some take-homes, I have these questions. If God has placed on your heart a person or a need you see around you, who can you share these thoughts with? It took me a long time to share my idea about a ladies' group. And that sounds ridiculous, but it did. It was months and months and months where I kept going, nah, 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 nah. And every now and again on Facebook when I'm, I'm still a part of their little communication, it just warms my heart that these women are still meeting and I know it's a blessing to them. And I thank God that I met up with that other lady who gave me the, the kick to actually go ahead with the idea. What would it take for you to be willing to take the next step and act? If you would like to show some lo show love and kindness to someone but you don't know where to start, I'd encourage you, talk to a friend or pray about it or both. Because if God's got something for you that's imminent and soon, he'll make it known to you where he wants to use you this week or this month or this year. You see, I truly believe this and it, I hope it's been a little bit of a thread through some of the things that have been said over the last few weeks on this topic, but miracles will happen when God and people work together. So are you up for a miracle? Let's pray.
Father God, Lord, thank you so much that your word is the word of life. There is power in the word from the Bible. And although this book was written many years ago, God, it has your hand, your divine hand in it and on it. And I just pray that today as we take home the thoughts of this story and and this um, message, God, that you will again speak into our lives because we want to be used by you. We want to work together, God, to create a wave of love and um, acceptance of others in our community, in the, in the people here at Northtime, but in the, in the people wherever our circles of, of life are. So, God, um, we just open our hearts and um, our time to you, God, and want you, God, to speak into us because we're just excited about what kind of miracles you might do in and through us. Thank you, God, that you are an awesome God. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you, God, that you take the weight of the burdens we carry. And thank you, God, for the hope that you fill our lives with. Thank you, God, for being an awesome God. Amen.